Welcome to this episode of Getting Curious. I am Jonathan Van Ness, and I am so excited. We have Dr. Stan Tacken in the house today. Uh, he is an author, and he is also the creator of PACT Therapy, which is Psychobiological Approach to Couples Therapy, and it is major. My therapist, Marty, who I'm obsessed with as well, uh, well, not in like the, that neurobiological uh, transfer way that happens, just like an in-general person way, because I love her. Uh, she told me about you, and so I read both of your books. Uh, but anyway, I've listened to one of your books and then read one of your books, and um, I want to talk to you about them. Great. So, uh, first of all, just to set the stage for everyone, you have to tell us about you. Oh, what do you want to know about me? Well, uh, well, tell us about PACT therapy, and tell us about like your uh, just like your practice, what you do. Tell us about you. Okay. Well, I started off as a musician. The, the beginning part of my life was music with my brother and myself. I come from a show business family. And that lasted until I was around 26, 27, really died off completely when I was around 30. And after I left music, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I had a very good friend of mine who was also a musician and a psychologist, and he introduced me to his mentor at that time was Hal Stone. Some people may know him still. Uh, he's the inventor of voice dialogue. And Hal was my very first teacher. That launched me back into school, and I never looked back. I've been in this field ever since, and I love it. And you've since become a like a you're a full doctor. I'm a you, full doctor. You're like a full, but like you're a you're like a you're a head doctor. I'm a head doctor. You're and you're you are and you have like because I everyone knows in this podcast I'm obsessed with a PhD. Right. Like whenever I see those, I'm like. You're well, actually, it's a PsyD. See, I'm, I have a doctorate of psychology. But still. Yes. <laughs> you're still a doctor. Yes. Yeah, it's major. Um, so is my wife. She just just got her doctorate also. So we're doctor, doctor. Did you guys meet in, in school? We met in junior high. Oh. You know, we were uh, 11 years old. It was, um, well, no, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't, no. It was seventh grade. It was seventh grade science. And I had a crush on her. From junior high to high school, she did not know this. Um, we, we traveled in separate groups. I was in the music group. She was in the surfer group. And uh, it wasn't until our 40s that we re-met. And, uh, and then she's the love of my life. I love that story. That's so cute. <laughs> so in this world, right, it's like I do hair. And so I, I think 85 to 90% of what I talk about behind the chair past their hair is like once we know what, what's going on with the hair, I hear a lot about relationships. My brain is dominated with relationships. I feel like growing up in the age of sex in the city and every telly show, it's like, who's my husband? Who's he going to be? Where is he? How am I going to find him? What you do is very similar to what we do. You are a listener. You are giving, probably helping people with their emotional we're, problems. We're chatters. We're yeah. doing all of it. But it's like in this world of, uh, of we got Tinder, we got Match, we got Scrub, we got Grinder, we got we got all of it. It's so accessible. Right. Dating is everywhere. Everyone is skinning this cat in a different way. Yep. Uh, how do you do it in a healthy way? That's really the question that I want to ask. How do we date in a healthy way, comma, once you have selected the person that you're going to date, how do we maintain that relationship in a healthy way? Which is all the subject matter of your books, which I want to make people read, so I don't want to talk about all of the things, the tips and the trades, but... What are like the highlights? How do we date healthily? Well, I don't use the word healthy because everyone has their idea of what healthy is. And then it makes it sound like people who make other choices are unhealthy. Uh. And it's really not true. Yeah, because we're not shaming. No. Yeah. I mean, if, if somebody is single, there are a lot of very happy single people. And they are, you know, connected to their social network. They're happy. They're fine. And this is not about you being coupled or being in a monogamous relationship or you even being, you know, 
whatever you want. Um, if you are going to be in a committed relationship, based on research, based on what we know about human pair bonding, it would be better if you were in what we call a secure functioning relationship. And that can be had by anybody. It basically just means that two people, if they are just two people, are operating as a two-person psychological system, fully mutual, fair, just, and sensitive. Basically, they have each other's backs. They're like in the foxhole together. They are experts on each other, right? They know each other very, very well. It's kind of like a major career. They protect each other in public and private. They're the first to know things. They're transparent with each other. In other words, as a survival mechanism, these two people understand that they're protecting each other from the dangerous environment that is the world. And I hear a lot of my people that I hear in relationship it's they're not completely transparent. They're not I've been I've definitely I've had two major relationships, like two big ones in my adult life. I was not transparent completely in either nor do I think the other person was. Um one of them I'm still really good friends with and the other one I will love forever and uh and and I wish we could be friends but I don't think we really are but I think we could be now right. that I'm a more mature uh, mm -hmm. woman in my approaching 30. Um but uh a lot of those things are not meant. Like it, in people's relationship now, I feel like from at least my friends and from what I hear. And I think for me and my two relationships, like in both cases, I think I needed like 15 of them at the beginning to properly decide like who should have been my boyfriend or not should have because I think whoever was was supposed to at the time because, you know, it happened. But it's like I needed to be dating like 15 people to figure out who was going to be my boyfriend. Whereas both cases, like once they like once I could tell they were thinking I was cute, I was like, you're going to be my husband. I like see. and it was five minutes of attention and I was sold. So there was no vetting. There right. was no. There was no. What's your family thing? Like I, I found out everything as I was like along for the ride. Right. And then it all just crashed and burned. And I think that happens a lot because we don't really vet and we don't really date. We don't really vet. We don't really date, and we don't really understand how our brain works when we are meeting somebody, and that we're basically high on drugs. Yes, yeah, on drugs. Right. Literally high. Yes. Yeah, and in retrospect, I can see that. Let's tell the people how we're high when we meet people that we like. Okay, so the drugs that we're on, basically, when we find somebody and we're, you know, our brain is lit up, we're really excited, dopamine for wanting more, right? That gets us to want to come back again and again. Yeah, we love dopamine. We love dopamine. Mm. Noradrenaline for mm. attention and focus. And love presence. noradrenaline. Oh, everyone does. Oh, yeah. Those are the catecholamines, by the way. And, and uh, testosterone for, and this is for men and women, for you know what, uh, and then oh. and then serotonin drops in a major way, which causes us to perseverate and get anxious and obsess over that person. Which oh, is, which when is they leave, it. exactly. Otherwise, we forget them. Oh my God, that's so interesting. So when they leave, all of a sudden our brain stops making the serotonin, so we obsess with them. That's right. <gasps> that's why every time I meet a new guy, I think I'm in love with them the first five minutes. Well, every time I meet a new guy. I always think that they're the one, and it's when they leave. Because, like, when I'm in front of them, I'm like, oh, they're really cute. I'm feeling this. And then they leave, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm obsessed with him. Like, what why is he texting me right now? Yes, I hate text? that. It drives me crazy. I hate that. And, I don't like that part. And that's what nature does to keep you in the game. Otherwise, that's why when they do it them. back, I set, I'm like, yeah, this will work. I can make this work. <laughs> like, when, if they do, if they give me the text back or in that, and they seem as thirsty as I am, I'm like, yes, queen, let's, be, let's move in tomorrow. There you go. I, but I'm, I feel like I'm getting farther away from that. Because <laughs> now from, like, watching The Bachelor and dating naked, 
and in Bachelor in Paradise, I'm aware that I'm really seem to, I think it's like 15 is the magic number. I think we all need to be dating like 15 people before you find your person. It is a numbers game, isn't it? Yeah. Like you need to, it's like, yeah, because our last episode was about biodiversity or about uh, evolution. Evolution, right. And yeah, I feel like that sets up your chances for survival better if you do it more. Okay. So wait, did we even get through the chemicals that we're on? Well, there's more. There is, there is, it's called vasopressin, vasopressin mostly in men. Uh, and also oxytocin. A lot of people are familiar mm. with oxytocin. That's the I love you chemical, right? Yeah. Some people connect it to I love you. Other people connect it to the being able to be still drug without fear, which makes it kind of a date rape drug. Um, oh. Right? So it, there's a lot that isn't um, known yet fully about oxytocin, except it allows you, for sure, allows you to be still without fear. Otherwise, you're using other chemicals for that. Right? So it allows for sex, allows for childbirth. Yeah, do we feel do you feel the rush of oxytocin like when you're having this is like gonna be kind of a question. Sure. Okay, great. <laughs> do you cause so if if I'm having really like connected like time, yeah. like horizontal time yes. with someone who I'm really into, yeah. Like it's not like I'm feeling them. Right. I do like I literally can feel when my brain starts to make something. Yes. Cause it's like this like really warm fuzzy, like you all, like cross-eyed, like you're just like, ugh, this is like... Well, if you're cross-eyed, that... you're too close. Well, that, that's what that is. <laughs> got it. Yeah, just got to pull away and close your eyes. Right. Uh, but, uh, but is that the oxytocin? Because that's what I always say in my head. I'm like, oh, I think this is the oxytocin. It's oxytocin, vasopressin, and dopamine. Oh, so I got a trifecta happening. yes. At the same time. Men have a little more of vasopressin. Women have a little more of the oxytocin effect. But basically, they're more, very similar. I bet I have more oxytocin. There you I think go. I have more. I really think that I, I just found out that I have gynecomastia. Like it's like this, like extra tissue, like uh-huh. on my chest that I've always wanted to have. It. Everyone says that I'm crazy, but I do. And you've so always I, wanted it. No, oh. I just know that I have it. Oh, I see. And my doctor was like, "No, you're being hard on yourself." And I was like, "No." And then he examined me, and he was like, "Oh my gosh, you do have breast tissue." So he just, uh, I, I he tested my blood for estrogen, and if I have elevated, we're going to do like an estrogen killer, so I can collapse the bottom part of my chest because. Right. I'm working really hard in the gym, but I digress. There so you go. So basically... You and I are probably both high estrogen, um, according to Helen Fisher, who's a, a biological anthropologist. She does a lot of studies on this. And people who are more related, uh, more emotional, uh, more interested in connection and people are, tend to be more estrogen types. My wife and I are that. You're that. And, but then I think I have a bunch of testosterone, too, because I'm horny all the time. Well, that isn't that isn't that isn't to say that you don't have those other things. I'm talking about like she she considers a it a basic chemical personality. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely oriented there. Yeah. But then I think that my brain makes a beautiful array of chemicals. There you go. Yeah, a, a ton. So, but basically, it's like you meet someone that you like, and then your brain makes all these chemicals. So, literally, when you're meeting someone, like you do, put on rose-colored glasses. Like literally. Yes. Yeah. And your judgment is affected, especially by testosterone. Our judgment is affected. Have a drink, and your judgment and perception is affected as well. We generally go after people with, with symmetrical faces or facial uh, ex, you know, uh, features. I heard this in your book. I heard this okay, in your book. Okay, yeah, and alcohol dissolves that. Yes! So, yes. Wait, no, but you, we have to tell that again to the listeners because I interrupted you the whole time. Oh, so okay. basically, we get attracted to people from right. symmetric, symmetricalness of their face, right? and then you pick it up there. If you drink alcohol, you, you lose that perception until, of course, you come off of it, and then you see the person. Yeah, the asymmetry of their face, and you're like, Jesus! Right, right. so th- that's why people can look differently after you first met them and you're not on alcohol. Totally. Right? The beer goggle there you effect go. right. uh, very much. So... So um, then do you – so I have a lot of um, friends, and I feel also this with myself, uh, 
can really, especially with online dating, can really slip into a point, and I've really seen it more with, because I used to, like, in my earlier 20s, I would have a lot of girlfriends, like, bust my balls about, like, grinder or, right. like, being on, like, you know, just, like, doing it too often. They're like, you're always doing that. But now, a lot of those same girls are, like, addicted to match. Like, right. I see a lot of, like, females becoming, like, really, like, into, uh, there's, like, into just very so what do you say to people or do you see people in your practice who are like have become like very much have like a process addiction with like dating yes well now because you're able to swipe left swipe right you're able to go and see all these people um not only do do people get can get addicted just like the slot machine at the you know at the vegas although now they don't have slot machines they have buttons which i think is stupid because that's not as addictive but anyway right so slot machine (laughs) right um you get you get into the technology and that becomes a reward in a sense and not only that, you can also get excited just about that initial new person feeling, which is only there to jettison you into the next part of a relationship, right? It's not intended to be the relationship. It is just that infatuation phase or the exciting, you know, this is a novel experience, novel person. And that's supposed to really go away. But if somebody is really doing this over and over again, they can kind of sit there and, and, and get into that. But the other problem is that this phenomena of ghosting, which was there in the long ago, but not nearly so much, not nearly. Now people just disappear, right? Right. Because I don't know you. I don't really care. Um, I can just drop you, never call you, never email you, text you again, and now I'm on to somebody else. So there's there's that happening now, too. And that creates its own, like, trauma and, and stuff for people to work through? Well, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. You don't, you don't exist. Yeah, that does hurt. And the person just drops off the face of the earth. So you guys, put a bookmark here for two seconds uh, and basically put a bookmark on... Uh, when you meet someone, your brain makes all these chemicals, and then uh, and that part is actually supposed to go away. So I want you to remember that. We're going to take a really fast break. Uh, more with Dr. Santakin and Getting Curious when we come back. Ty is a pedantic person. I think when he pronounces these words, it's, it's in a very show-offy way. Gyro. Gyro. Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. Ayers Rock. Uluru. (laughs) (laughs) What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with real cases. They call in via Skype to Judge John Hodgman's court, the real people's court. Now I call you to Judge John Hodgman's internet court. Find it at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Attention, Europe. This fall, Maximum Fun is bringing a bunch of your favorite podcasters to London. Catch Judge John Hodgman, International Waters, and Bullseye, all recording live episodes at the London Podcast Festival. We'll have fan meetups and we'll be joined on stage by a glittering array of celebrity guests. The London Podcast Festival runs September 22nd through 26th, and you can buy your tickets right now. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness, and uh, we have Dr. Santakin in studio, who we are so obsessed with right now. (laughs) Um, So basically what I was just asking you guys was to put your bookmark in for right after you meet someone. Uh, Your brain's made all these things. How long does that part usually last? It depends. It depends on how much threat there is in the relationship. Threat tends to continue that feeling uh, because you don't know whether the relationship will actually happen, and so you're auditioning, right? Right. 
But that's very, very stressful, and that will also kill a relationship if it goes on too long. Right. So basically, it, it takes as long as it takes for that person to become more familiar or even familial, and that's when certain things begin to happen. So you and I, we know each other. We're excited. We have all these fantasies about each other. We don't really know each other because uh, we're we're all projection, right? Yeah. I, what I imagine you are, what I imagine my and what I am you could you. be to me, and, and what, what I you, could yes, be. exactly. And so now you start to become permanent to me, at least in my mind. And now things shift. Now you become deep family. You become someone who is a proxy, perhaps, for everyone who came before. And this is when I begin to automate you. So let me just back up a second. Everything new is going to be old soon. Our brain has to economize resources in order to function day to day. So the very, very expensive parts of our brain, which are involved in novelty, love novelty, are very expensive to run, and we can't possibly run our day fully with that. We'd burn up, okay? So Anything new gets relegated to something called procedural memory, like when you learn to ride a bike, right? You learn in the beginning, everything's online, your brain is lit up, you're excited, scared, and then you can be riding your bike while reading texts and calling somebody and doing your yes. hair, whatever. Okay. Same with a person. I meet you, I want to know everything about you, spend all my time with you, and so on. And then you begin to become automated as I become automated for you. This is the brain's way of, of making the relationship easier. And that whole thing, the anxiety that I talked about, goes away. And now you become very familial. This is when we pick correctly. We pick somebody who we recognize. In the beginning in a bar or, you know, when you first meet somebody, that's when you, you are just wanting to have sex, right? Um, nature doesn't really care so much about the long-distance uh, long, uh, uh, relationship. Yes. But, but after that phase is over, now you're either going to stay with this person because they're familiar to you or you're going to dump them because they're too strangerish. If they're familiar, that's when you move for, uh, further ahead. And the problem with automating each other, which is going to happen no matter what, is we begin to think we know the other person and we start making more errors because you, that new person, become a part of a, a memory system that includes everyone and everything that I ever had any emotional experience with. That means I'm going to act and react according to this huge um, ocean of memory that I have. And I'm going to stop paying attention as I did in the beginning. I'm going to stop being fully present. And that's when I start making mistakes. And right. that's when you start making mistakes. So back up just a second. So back to the part about uh, when we're making all these chemicals in the beginning, it's novel. How many people can we really, you know, because some people are like, I can't date. I don't date well. I can only really date one person at a time. Mm -hmm. How many people can we really have going at once? I, I imagine there are people who have as many people as they can possibly get away with. But what would that be like? That would be that kind of addiction to that first part of a relationship, right? But if you're really trying to, like, like my new thing is, is, like, I want to be, like, the bachelor in my own head. Uh -huh. Not literally, but, like, I want to vet, like, ten people at once. Like, I want my husband. Where is he? So let's just try out, like, a bunch of people and see, like... But, I mean, how often does the Bachelor TV show really work out? Never. So maybe this is the wrong way to skin this cat. I think so. I think you're right. I think I just answered my own question. Yeah. So, like, really, like, what? Like, maybe two or three? It's... I, you know, I don't know because in order Everyone's to really get to know somebody, you've got to really spend time with them and you've got to really pay attention. You've got to sleuth them. You've got to um, really watch. And you've got to bring them around your peeps, right? I mean, how yeah. many people are going to bring around? Oh, is this the same person I saw last night? Oh, that's embarrassing. Um, no, this is a new person. So how many people are you going to juggle this way? And how good are you going to be at vetting them if you've had yeah, all these yeah, people? Yeah, not that good. No. No. 
you know. Uh, so, <laughs> so I think that's going to be a hard deal to yeah. manage. Uh, but this other part of bringing people around to your friends, to your social network, and by the way, they need to be male and female, young yes. and old, um, in order for them to sort of sniff you guys out to see whether you look good with this person, whether you're a good couple, whether you, you look happy, you're yourself. Yeah. Right? And this is how it's done. It's been done this way probably since the beginning of civilization. But a lot of us don't do it anymore. And, uh, and then we get into trouble. Right. Do you believe... I'm going to guess no, but like the, the whole soulmate thing, we don't believe this. Like there could be like a million soulmates for you. Like if there's a billion people, like we all have like maybe like a million that could work. Yeah. And who's going to tell you that that's true? I mean, this is made up stuff, right? A soulmate. A soulmate basically means that you're with somebody that you feel terribly comfortable with. They are familial and familiar. They're not too stranger-ish. That can be almost anybody that you want to be with, right? That you want to be with. You're not going to be with anybody who's too strange. Yeah. So basically the person you're with would be your soulmate. Yeah, so it's not this impossible thing because when you think of it like one person floating around, it's like, no, like a bunch of people could work. So that's what we believe. Well, it's depressing if there's only one person yeah. you're sunk. Why even try? It's like, just let's jump off this ninth floor now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what if not really. What if your soulmate is, is in some third world country that you don't want to live in? <sighs> that would, oh my God, yeah. That would be, that. yeah, I got it. Totally. <laughs> So, but so then, uh, then, then obviously, a lot of your books talk about like how to create a secure functioning relationship. Yeah. Which um, I think I've had glimpses. I think I've had moments. I think mm-hmm. a lot of us have had moments. How do we, in this crazy world with D's flying at us and V's flying at us, you can cheat everywhere you turn? How do we stack the deck, in your words, uh, to, to make it last, to make it work? What well, do we tell the children? This, <laughs> this goes to something called social contract theory. It's not very sexy. But what basically what it is, is the idea that how do people actually get along being different, having different backgrounds, different cultures, different wants and needs and ways of thinking? How do we do that without killing each other? Well, we come up with social contracts. What is fair, just, and sensitive? And that is what two people do, right? So cop car partners, they have a social contract. They protect each other from the outside world. They are the go-to people. They tell each other most everything because it's a them and us kind of thing. It's sort of baked into the whole system. It's expected that you protect your partner. And we have people in other countries where bombs are raining down them. They don't have time to wonder whether they're with their soulmate. They're too busy protecting each other from falling bombs. So this is a very basic idea that everyone can do. But the culture has to expect it, or at least the environment does. And that is we either agree that we're going to do these things for each other that nobody else wants to do unless they're paid a lot of money. We're going to accept each other as each other's pain in the ass, each other's burden, because that's the quid pro quo. And we're going to have each other's backs because who else will? And the fantasy that we can afford to be with a partner and not depend on them, not trust them, um, is just that because – the world has never been a very safe place. There are things coming that we can't really predict. Being together, tethered together, relying on each other, that is a position that most people will never enjoy. It's available to everybody, but they have to just agree. Right. It's a decision. And a, and a lot of people just don't have the words or the language to put on it to make these agreements. And that's really what pack therapy is based off of, like these agreements. It's based on the agreements on the top. Um, at the bottom, we're dealing with the brain. We're dealing with the nervous system. We're dealing with oh, yeah, hum- yeah. what humans do. But at the top, intellectually, it's about being an adult. It's about knowing that you have to depend on at least one other person in order to not just survive but thrive. 
and that if that relationship is feel is fully mutual and collaborative, the things that you can do are beyond what you can do when you, if you're by yourself. Now, if you're in a an insecure relationship, that can actually be worse. That can make you sick. That can make you vulnerable to all sorts I've of diseases. So experienced that. Yes. This one time, because <clears throat> I have psoriasis. I broke out in psoriasis oh, for dear. six months wow. in this one relationship because it was so stressful. stressful. Right. It was so stressful. So uh, steering the boat around, we're going on a different kind of different. I have a couple questions from uh, some of my friends. Okay. Uh, which is, uh, it's like I'm not asking for myself literally. Like these are, it's not like my friend. I'm like, she's sure. a, these are literally friend questions. So I have these one friends, and one of them is concerned that the other one may not be fully capable of understanding or operating his owner's manual. I see. Um, so so he feels that the other person doesn't really get him. Yeah, like that's like, or like maybe might not ever have the capacity to fully get their manual. Possible. Like, you know, maybe gets like, like I was saying, oh, like they get sections like one through eight, but then nine and 10, they flunk. And then like 11, they kind of pick it up again. Exactly. Like, what about that? Well, first of all, it, it, does your is your friend good at reading the other partner the partner yes. how good is he i think pretty i think pretty good because many times i will find that the people who many times people who complain that their partner doesn't get them if when we do exercise we find that they actually don't get their partner either uh. and the emphasis here is not on being gotten it's on getting right so if i'm with you you're in my care it's my job to really know you i have to i have to be a jonathan whisperer that's a phd in you yeah i don't i don't really think so much about whether you're that way with me, right? Now you're, you're too focused, and like, but you both have to be like that. You both have to be. But if I'm with someone who's not interested in knowing me, then why am I here, right? What's the point of this? But if I'm with somebody who I think is not as good, you know, as I am at them, yeah. First of all, that's a perception. We don't know if that's really true, right? But, uh, but is that okay? Because some people are not as good at this, yeah. And also, uh, it takes some time. Some people. Um, who want to be known don't really let the other person know. Um, so all things of this, uh, you know. Wait, let's be- break that down for a second. Yeah. Some people who want to be known yes. don't let the other person be known. Right. They will not give a clue. They want to be found, but they make it as difficult as possible. They're not doing it purposely, but this is how they're wired. This is their childhood. Right? I do that sometimes. Everyone can do this. Yeah, I feel like I do that sometimes. Yeah. And so we assume that everyone's going to be as good as a parent should be, and that's just not true. I mean, we always want to be able to find the baby in our partner, right? We want to find the baby, just like a parent has to find the baby constantly. And that would be nice. But not everybody is is that good, and not everybody is actually, as an adult, very good at letting the other person know. Right. So they're both important, right? Um, take, for example, somebody who is very verbal, very verbal, and they're with somebody who isn't, and they demand that the, that, that person be verbal and use their words and talk. That's kind of unfair. In a couple situation, we expect that person to pay attention to the nonverbal cues. And, like, meet that person where they are. Exactly. But if, we're, if I was addressing the person who's also not talking, I would also have to address them and say, you know, part of your job here is to also make it easier for your partner so your partner doesn't have to work that hard. Okay? Right. So both people have to do something. And that, see, I'm focused on the couple, not on the individuals in the couple. And the reason for this is that people are extremely complex. Nothing more difficult on the planet than another person. We lie. We deceive. 
we don't know what we're doing most of the time because real time is too fast. And we have a a part of the brain that's dedicated to making stuff up. That's what (laughs) we do. What I don't know, I make up because we need to have a reason for why we do stuff. But we don't know. And so imagine that people are going back and forth trying to be their best, not intentionally trying to make their relationship threatening, but they're reacting to each other so quickly that they can't even think that fast. Real time is that fast. And unfortunately, the primitive parts of our brain that act and react according to memory are lightning fast. So we're more likely to do things reflexively before we even know why or how we even got to that position, right? And that's the mess we get into. That's the human condition. And if we understand that, then we can be more forgiving. We can be more forgiving about how messed up our communication is always. You know, the thing about communication, when we feel good, we don't care that we're misunderstanding each other. Right. When we don't feel good, we care a whole lot. Yes. And as arousal or as stress moves up, um, we get worse at communication. I can see this as a clinician. And people just don't know this. I saw that a lot. In my own yeah. in my own stuff, for sure. So the biggest takeaway from and that that's is everybody. And it's like not even just in, you know, romantic relationship, it's like in all relationship, it's like slow down. Slow down, check your information, cross check. The idea that that people understand the word you're using or that you even understand the word you're yeah. using. Yeah. I make slim. that mistake, honey. And that's fine, except when there's distress. The big problem is can these two people handle distress? If they cannot, they will they will accrue a sense of threat. And if they can't repair the, the mistakes they're making, that, uh, that threat becomes biological to the point where just being in the room together, their heart rates go up, and now they're afraid of this other person. Yeah, this is a big, this is a big point of, of yeah, like, the threat thing because it's, like, all of a sudden, like, you have this part of you that, like, w- wants a secure functioning relationship and wants a partner and wants to meet someone, and then all of a sudden you do, and that person's, like, your love object, and it's right. in this, like, sweet place of the brain until all of a sudden we perceive a threat. Yes. Maybe we saw a text message. Maybe it and maybe it was real. Maybe it wasn't as big, like whatever. Or or they they go home one night when you thought they were gonna whatever. Like some threat happens and all of a sudden like that threat is attached to that person and all of a sudden it's like it's like someone's trying to take away like your gorgeous toy that you just got. Except for that's literally a person, right? Who's well, taking themselves away? Let's so take, it's like let's take an example. Nobody can see you, but you're, you're you're using very nice hand gestures. But let's say I'm somebody who those hand gestures mean something else, right? I misunderstand them because I'm in a state of mind that remembers those hand gestures. Yeah, because. You're about to get hit or something. Right. That's threatening to me. Right. And so you might say, well, gosh, what can I do? I'm not doing that purposely. Of course not. But this is a perceptual game. If I'm perceiving it as threatening because I'm using this entire memory bank because I've automated you, that is the problem that you have to bear and you have to watch that. Just as I have to watch how I tilt my head or the tone of voice I use or whether I bare my teeth or any of those things that to you mean this is threatening. So I want your audience to understand we're not talking about beatings. We're not talking about guns. We're talking about the day-to-day things that people do that get interpreted, misinterpreted, as as hostile, yeah, like, their in, you, like their Instagram opens up and there's a picture of like another, like they're like it just happens to open up to like some guy with the shirt off and you're like, why are you looking at his Instagram? Like, Oops. it's like yeah, it's like little baby, like it, it can be a little tiny threat, it can be a big threat, it can be all sorts of stuff. It's all the ones we have to worry about are actually the day to day tiny, yeah. Ones. But I mean, like something that feels like a big threat, like like it's not like like not the beating threat, but like a. Like a threat to your relationship. A like, threat to the relationship. Yeah, you're like, cheating. You're not, you're not, I can't depend on this you. This isn't going to work out. Like all sorts of different stuff. So, okay, so that was one thing. And then the other thing was like for people that have been together for a long time and maybe their sex is just like, like that is a thing. Right. Like maybe it's just getting dreary. It ain't <laughs> happening. 
what what do we what do we say? Do we go to a sex therapist? Do we what do we do? Like what? Yeah. This again is like a friend question. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, okay, so a lot of people compare their passion, their sex, to the beginning part of the relationship. So if you're comparing now to then, that's a silly thing to compare to. Mm-hmm. We're superhumans when we're in that first infatuation phase. We're able to do things we won't be able to do later. Okay, so that's one. Two, the novelty, of course, is going to be gone because we've automated each other. So what are we going to do? Well, thankfully, paying attention and being present through the eyes brings back love. We fall in love through the eyes. We, you know, lust is at a distance, love is up close. So we always have the eyes, we always have gazing, we always have touch. And the purpose of sex, unless you're going to have children, it's invented, you have a task, the purpose of sex isn't what we think. You know, if we think it should be a certain way, then we'll be disappointed. Because after all, the human brain has a negativity bias. We always are aware of what we don't have. Yes. That's what we're going to do. So that robs us of going deeper the, the the sexual relationship is an opportunity for play and for deepening our knowledge of each other. It's like pillow talk. It is like anything else. The investment, the time, the presence that we offer in that moment is what is novel. Everything else is mechanical, especially if we're trying to rekindle some old part of ourselves that we can only do if we meet a brand new person. And that will only happen with our, our mate, God forbid, at the time when we get dementia, we say, oh, oh my God, nice to meet you. Yeah. Who are you? Never saw you before. Yeah. Uh, other than that, that ship sailed, and now it's time for mature people to get closer, deeper, use the intimacy in a way that actually brings back presence and attention. That's the antidote to the automatic brain, presence and attention. And that allows for, like, creativity and, like, deeper connection. And you can, like, grow into each other more. Absolutely. Ooh, grow into each other more. There you anyway, go. Anyway, so then that was that. And then my last question is, is open relationships. Ah. I'm really personally discouraged by them. Yes. Um, I, a lot of uh, gay, straight, a lot of people have them. My fantasy is, like, I want that Carrie Bradshaw, like, love so deep, you know, an ocean would blah, blah, like, that line that she has and that, like... I want that. Like, and I don't want it to be open. Like, so have you ever seen them work? No. I have a lot of them. I have a lot of uh, polyamorous couples from polyamorous communities come in. I have people with Which open poly marriages. means you have multiple relationships and it's all transparent. Love. Everyone knows. Yes. Yeah. So there's multiple love relationships. That's right. And you might have like a first, second, third. Maybe they're all equal. There's different ways to skin the cat. Right. And there. Then, right. Then open marriage is we have the right to have sex with anybody. You don't have to know them. It's my business and so on. Yes. So all different forms. And here's the problem. We are, by nature, dyadic creatures. We are herd animals, but even within the herd, we form dyads, two people systems, right, from childhood on. And so we, in that system, we tend to pick our partners, and then they become primary for us. So you have two primary people. Even in polygamous cultures where there are many wives, there's always one main person, and that's the primary. They get the biggest hut and so on. That's the person we go to when we're in distress, the first person we call, and when we want to celebrate something. That primary relationship does not like being, uh, you know, tertiary or whatever. Um, We don't appreciate, if we're in a primary attachment relationship, we don't appreciate being thrown under the bus, relegated to third wheel, demoted from king to pauper, whatever. And if people are doing that, they have to be very conscious that they have to protect the primacy of that dyad if they're going to bring other people in. 
I have yet to see people who do it well and do it in the long run. Someone gets hurt. It, it, it ends up being a system that's too unfair, too unjust, and ultimately too insensitive. And that's what will make it crash. And, and then they usually need – and then have you ever seen people go from open and then go back to secure functioning they together? Can, they can, sure. So, and you, so you've seen that? If that if, like you don't, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you went an open way and then it didn't work, you can go back? Well, people that I see will do that, yeah. right? Because I, that's all I sell is secure functioning. Yeah. And, and you know that, that's where they're going to have to go if they're with me. But other, th- other than that, no, I think people in the wild are more likely to split up and, and feel hurt and probably not go back to that system. Right. They would just have to go. They would just have yeah, to go. Yeah, totally. Well, I could literally have you on for 100,000 hours and talk so much. Well, uh, And actually, also, at this point in the podcast, I always say, you know how I go to yoga class? Like, if you, like, really wanted to do a handstand that day or you wanted to do a triangle pose and then I didn't teach it, <laughs> uh, it's like that. Like, is there anything I missed that you feel it's very important for us no, to tell the this children? Is, this has been fun, Jonathan. You're fun to talk to Thank and deal with. You are. And then uh, where can the children find you? Where can What's your Twitter? What's your Insta? What's your Facebook? What's your website? Well, uh, there's StanTatkin.com and there's the PackedInstitute.com where people who want to learn how to do this approach, a psychobiological approach, which is now worldwide. We train people. Uh, are invited to go there, all the mental health people out in your audience. Um, it's a great system of working. And if you want to uh, follow me on uh, on Twitter, it's uh, at Dr. Stan Tatkin. And I think uh, Facebook is Dr. Stan Tatkin, too. I think it is, yeah. For everyone listening, you can find links uh, to all of his social media on whatever device you're listening to this podcast on. You can find me on Twitter at The Gay of Thrones. My Instagram is at Gay of Thrones. Um, on Twitter, hashtag getting curious. Don't be shy. Leave us a review. We love them. Five star holler. We love it. Uh, any questions that you have, suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear it. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our podcast is produced by Christian Duaneus and Colin Anderson of MaximumFun.org, who we love and think endlessly. And we really do appreciate your participation, your comments, your thoughts, uh, as long as they're positive. Just kidding. <laughs> Tell me what you think. Uh, and uh, But we just love you guys. And thank you so much for listening and helping our baby podcast grow. And we will hear you, uh, see you, and, and love you in the next episode. Big kiss. Bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.